0: The scripture reading is from Psalm 30. It can be found on page 461 in the Black Bibles. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountains stand strong. You hid, my face, hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The Word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Bob, very much. Uh, We are in a summer series on uh, the book of Psalms, not the whole book, just a a few of the Psalms that we'll get through before we launch into a new sermon series um, in the fall. And One of the things that the Psalms really does for us, as we talked about last week, is it helps us to find a language for prayer. Because what the Psalms are really good, well the Psalms are God's words, they're good for a lot of things, but one of the things that the Psalms are good for that we struggle with is to help us to find uh, an emotional language to express the totality of our being. Uh, We tend to be, a lot of us, myself included, largely cognitive beings. We want to think Right thoughts. And we kind of feel like if we just think the right things, then we'll be the right people. But God has created us to be holistic beings. We are bodies and souls united together as a body soul nexus that is not meant to be torn apart. And so that means that not only are we cognitive beings, we are also physical beings. Our bodies are important. We're also emotional beings, we feel things. And our feelings are not necessarily in competition with our thinking. And one of the things that the Psalms helps us to do is to give us a language, a heart language, an emotional language, if you will, to come to God in prayer. David helps us with that in Psalm 30, so let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we look into this Psalm Lord Jesus, we do thank you. Um, We thank you that you are with us, that you promised that you will be with us in this time that we are gathered. We pray particularly, Father, as we look into your word, which is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our paths that we will see the light of Christ. We ask it in your most precious name. Amen. Is it possible... That what looks to you for all the world like it is probably heaven could actually be hell? Is that a possibility? It's kind of an intriguing question. It's such an intriguing question that somebody actually created an entire television show recently out of this plot. It's called The Good Place. and I'm about to give away some stuff here, but uh, uh, sorry. It's not giving away that much But the premise of this television show The Good Place Is to take a few people Who believe that they have lived a really good life And deserve to be in heaven And then to take a few people Who kind of lived a little bit more of a crummy life And didn't feel like that they deserved to be in heaven Or were kind of confused by it And put them together in this sort of utopian society To see what happens And what happens is that the perfectionist who tried to do absolutely everything right in her life slowly began to realize that she did all of those things really out of jealousy and out of selfish motives in her heart. And then you realize slowly over time that the professor of ethics who is also there in heaven, who knows everything that there is to know about ethics from Aristotle to Nietzsche, realizes that he really only knows about ethics in a theoretical way. He doesn't actually know what to do in the right moment at the right time. And slowly but surely it becomes apparent that this utopian society that looked like it was supposed to be heaven was actually hell where they were coming to terms with the deepest and the darkest and the most painful aspects of their lives. It looked like God was smiling on them, but he had actually turned his face away. So here's the question. Is it possible that sometimes we think wrongly about the circumstances of our lives, that is it possible that we think that when our lives are smooth, when our lives are going well, we think that that, that that is God's smile upon us. But is it possible that that could actually be a signal that he is turning away from us? That a comfortable life is not necessarily evidence of God's kindness to us. That's a challenging question, isn't it? Particularly in 2019, where there is a lot of teaching in our modern sensibilities that depends on the premise that a comfortable and smooth life is evidence of God's love for you. And there are Bible verses that you can find and pick up that demonstrate that. But insisting on comfort and on success, and on physical health as evidence of God's love, can actually be crushing and debilitating to us. Why? Well, first of all, it teaches you that if your life is not smooth, if your life is not successful, if your physical body is not healthy, then you must be doing something wrong, or there must be something wrong with you. Maybe you don't trust God enough. Maybe you don't have enough faith. Maybe you are hiding some kind of sin in your life that you just refuse to let go of. So you're being punished by experiencing something hard of some kind. Now there are two problems to this approach, the New Testament and the Old Testament. The New Testament problem is Jesus. Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb had no sin. So if comfort and ease and health are rewards for a life well lived, then Jesus should have experienced what we would consider the most wonderful and amazing of all lives on this earth. But what did Jesus experience? Well, he was, as the Old Testament prophesied, A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was stricken, he was smitten, he was afflicted. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was esteemed not. The life of Jesus is enough to convince us that comfort and ease in this life is not necessarily a sign of God's love for us, but it's not only a New Testament teaching. It's also found here in Psalm 30. A psalm of David. David, the man after God's own heart who knew suffering and pain unlike Jesus, partially because of his own sin but also because of the sin of other people directed toward him. So here's the question I want us to consider together this morning. What if times of great difficulty in our life Lives. What if times of great hardship in our lives are not necessarily a sign of God's displeasure with you, but instead a signal of God's grace and his love toward you? What if one of the most wonderful things that God can do for you is to save you from your sense of self-sufficiency, to bring you low in order ultimately to exalt you with Christ? This is the story of the life of David. who is attributed as the author of Psalm 30. He knows all about pride and all about humility. He knows about placing his hope in his position. And he knows about the use and the abuse of power. Having at one point in his life committed adultery and murder because he was the king of Israel and he thought he could. He thought he could do whatever he wanted to do and eliminate whoever got in his way. And he was also vulnerable enough to run through the gamut of his emotional life and then to write it down in things like Psalm 30 where we encounter three things. First, the position of pride. Second, the presence of tears. And third, the power of grace. The position of pride, the presence of tears, the power of grace. We begin with a position of pride, the height from which we often fall if we are ultimately going to experience, at the end of the day, the power of God's grace for us. Verse 6 says this, As for me, David says, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Have you ever wondered why it is, uh, you may not be like me, but this is kind of how my heart works. Why it is that despite all evidence to the contrary, that we tend towards self-exaltation when things are going well. In other words, when things are going well in our lives, we can stand up and we can look around and we can say, Look what I did! It's pretty awesome! I did a really good job with that. I'm building a really good life for myself. But then when things go badly in our lives, we tend not to do that, right? We tend not to go... Man, I'm a lousy person. Look what I did. We tend to go, those people out there are being really mean towards me. Or, if we're super honest, we might say, God, why are you doing this to me? We shift blame. When things are going well in our lives, we, we, we give ourselves credit. When our lives are struggling, we tend toward blame shifting. The reason why our hearts are bent that way is because they have bent, been bent that way since our very first parents, Adam and Eve, bent them that way with their own sin. It is a desire that we have to replace God with ourselves. It lies at the root of our rebellion against God. It's been this way since Genesis 3 when we read of Adam and Eve's temptation in the Garden of Eden by Satan who took the form of a serpent. The first thing that Satan did in approaching Eve was to question God's goodness toward her. He asked Eve, what did God say? You may not eat of this tree. If you do, you will surely die. And Satan said, that's a lie. You will not die? Because God is holding out on you. He doesn't want you to experience what you would experience if you ate of that tree, which would be like to be just like him. He's afraid of you. He's holding out on you. And so Adam and Eve ate and the text says that their eyes were opened, they did know good and evil, but that that only brought pain and it did not make them like God. This is the great temptation at the root of all of our sin. You don't need God, you can be God. You don't need authority in your life, you can be Be the authority in your life. You don't need a standard of ethics or a standard of truth. You can create your own truth. Authenticity becomes the standard. And authenticity flows not from without, but from within. So you and I have no right whatsoever to ever challenge anyone's self-expression. Nor do they have any right whatsoever to challenge yours that's the god of our age we stand here and we will not be moved that's the pride our position of pride that david began with in psalm 30 in 1972 charles colson was special counsel to president richard nixon and he wrote a memo to his staff in 1972, in a, an election year, and it included this line. I would walk over my own grandmother to ensure the re-election of the president. That's pretty, that's pretty harsh, actually. I pretty much summed up his role in the White House, a role that President Nixon described as his hatchet man. Meaning, he was the person to do whatever it took to get the job done. As we find out whether it was legal or whether it was illegal. Because some of the things that Charles Coulson did as President Nixon's hatchet man was hire people to orchestrate the stealing of psychiatric records, to discredit a Pentagon official, to having those same people break into the Watergate building, which led ultimately to Nixon's downfall. He would do whatever it took to accomplish the will of the president. After his conversion to Christianity in 1973, Coulson said that the trait that he possessed most in his life was the trait that President Nixon valued the most. Pride. Hubris pride pride in his own strength to do whatever needed to be done with the corresponding self assurance that because of his position and because of his power he would never get caught until he did ultimately pleading guilty to obstruction of justice and serving time in prison for very real crimes that he committed but it was just that experience it was just that experience of being at the height of power and then being brought low being having all of itself sufficiently stripped away that ultimately allowed him to rest in Christ alone as his savior and his lord his fall from power his shame ultimately turned into his glory because it brought him into relationship with Jesus and completely changed the trajectory of his life and there when we are brought low when we realize that we are not the measure of all things there we encounter we should if our hearts are changed by Christ at least the presence of tears The prophet Ezekiel describes what happens to a human being upon what we now call conversion. Conversion is going from a state of being outside of relationship with God to being in relationship with God by virtue of placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is conversion. Ezekiel speaks of this conversion in poetic terms. He says that it is about taking our hearts of stone and turning them and replacing them with hearts of flesh. Now this work of God, of taking our hearts of stone, our hearts that are hard against him and hard toward other people, and replacing them with hearts of flesh, which are soft and malleable towards God, and malleable and soft towards other people, is completely transformative, because not only does it change your mind about God, where you go from a cognitive state of unbelief to a cognitive state of belief in Christ, it changes your life, including your emotional life. One of the things that this means is that you should expect and actually embrace tears in your life. Creation, after all, is fallen. But you can utilize those tears in a powerful way. You can actually invest them in the work of of god tears are mentioned twice in psalm 30 first in verse 5 the psalmist writes weeping may tarry for a night but joy comes with the morning later in verse 11 he writes you have turned my mourning into dancing so in both of those cases tears precede joy but what does this mean does this mean that 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 tears can only last so long. If you just wait it out long enough, you know, eventually you won't be sad anymore and you'll ultimately be happy. It could mean that, but there are a couple of things in the Bible that push us much deeper than that to help us better make sense of these words. The first is simply to note that in verse 11... God is active in turning mourning into dancing. It doesn't just happen, in other words, through the normal course of time. God makes it happen. He turns your mourning into dancing. The second is to look at a couple of other passages that speak about the same thing, but talk about it in a a slightly different way. The first is another one of the Psalms. Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Now this verse presents something much more profound than simply Time heals all wounds. That's not what it says. I learned this at one point from a sermon that I listened to a while back from Tim Keller. That there's an activity of purposefully planting your tears in a way that brings about intense joy. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For our light and momentary afflictions... And you might be soft-pedaling our afflictions a little bit. Paul's afflictions were more than light in human terms, and they were more than momentary in human terms. But in light of eternity, they were both light and momentary. That's what he's saying. So he says, for our light and momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Did you catch the way that the verbiage works there? It doesn't say that our afflictions are giving way to eternal weight of glory. It says, our light and momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. We inherit joy by means of our tears. And in this we follow the way of our Savior whose ultimate glory came by way of the afflictions of the cross and the profound bearing of the weight of the sins of his people. So there is, as Tim Keller says, a way to invest your tears, to sow them, to plant them, to feel the full weight of the brokenness on this earth. And by means of that investment, you receive receive compound interest in joy. It's a serious thing. So what does that mean? How do we sow our tears like seed? Well, one way is simply to experience the heartbreak and the pain of your own sin and the brokenness of this world. If you don't make a big deal out of your own sin and out of the brokenness of this world that is a result of sin, you'll never truly understand the great glory of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. When Jesus' friend Lazarus died and Jesus saw how much pain it caused the people that he loved, he wept. Jesus wept because of the profundity and the power and the pain of this broken world. He didn't weep for his own sin. He wept because of the pain and the devastation and the heartbreak and the loss that was the result of sin in this world. So to weep over your sin makes way for the profound joy that overtakes you when you receive God's grace that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. To weep at a lost relationship, to weep at a lost friend, to weep at a lost family member is to speak truth about the state of God's creation that is groaning even now under the weight of sin waiting waiting for the sons of God to be revealed at the return of Jesus Christ and perhaps most profoundly to weep with another person To weep with another person in their hurt and in their pain, to share the pain and the hurt of a friend, to weep with those who weep is truly to invest your tears because you are telling another person that they are not alone in their grief and they have nothing to be ashamed of from their weeping. It's a vulnerable thing to do because you are offering yourself to them and you are saying, It is okay for you to weep, I'll weep with you, we'll weep together. And it's a vulnerable thing. You're breaking down that wall. You are sowing your tears, though, in that relationship that they may receive joy. So we have seen the position of pride that we need to, to, to fall from, to be removed from. And the presence of tears, now the power of grace. One of the most important features of the Psalms, as we've already talked about, is they give us a language for prayer. And the language for prayer that we find in the Psalms is beautifully raw and is often searching. In other words, if you get stressed out by theological imprecision, you might get stressed out by reading the Psalms. Because David very often writes down everything that he thinks and he feels, and sometimes it's not exactly precise. Now, it doesn't mean that there's error in the Bible. Not at all. There is no error in the Bible. What it means is the Psalms, that in the Psalms, the Lord allows the searching of the psalmist. And what that teaches us, and this is beautiful and this is important, you need to hear this, is that God allows your searching as well. He, allow, he, he is strong enough and he is big enough for you to ask questions in prayer as he, through the Holy Spirit, leads you to ultimately the answer. Look at verse 9 and leading on into verse 10. Verse 9, David begins his call to God by really focusing on himself in a lot of ways. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? This is simply a raw and an emotive prayer from David seeking words to call out for God to heal him and to help him. And it gives way, in verse 10, to something that is not centered on him, but something that is ultimately centered on God. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. It's God-centered from here on out you have turned my mourning into dancing you have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praises and not be silent oh lord my god i will give thanks to you forever so now we have fully moved from this position of pride to giving way to the power of grace and nothing Absolutely nothing could be more gracious of God than to break down our pride so that we stop living for praise for ourselves and ultimately are able with all honesty to say with David the last line of Psalm 30, O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Our humbling to the point of crying out to God in his grace leads us to the place where we can honestly and truthfully say that we give thanks to the Lord forever. Because ultimately that leads us to the place of only being able to cling to the cross of Christ and not to our glory. In 1963, the British Secretary of War, a guy named John Profomo, was riding high. 48 years old. He was at the top of his career. He was one of the favorites of the prime minister. He was rumored, actually, to be the next in line as the prime minister of Great Britain until it all came crashing down. Because John Profomo had a secret until, as a lot of times happens with secret, It wasn't a secret. John Profumo was a married man, but he was having an affair with a younger woman who also happened to be romantically involved with a Soviet military attache who was based in London, a man named Yevgeny Ivanov. Now everyone in London knew that anyone who had the the, the position of Soviet attache in London was a spy. And he actually was. So John Profomo was both cheating on his wife and doing so with someone who could be and probably was passing government information to the Soviets during the height and the heat of the Cold War. When it came to light, John Profomo initially considered fighting the rumors, denying all wrongdoing, eventually thinking he might threaten with libel anyone who made these claims about him. But eventually the truth caught up with him. And he resigned from office. Now, think about this. In America, what happens when something like this happens? When somebody gets caught and they remove themselves from public life, what do they do? The first thing that they do, generally speaking, is they find someone in public relations who advises them about how long it is that they need to lay low before they can gently and ultimately make their way back up into that position of power that's the way that it works that's the way the world works this is not what John Profumo did when he left the political arena he left the political arena the first thing that he did was to attend to his marriage which ultimately survived his infidelity The second thing that he did was actually to absorb the weight of what he had done. He sat in it. He had allowed his pride and his position to overtake him. He hurt his wife and his family. He hurt his country that he was bound by oath to serve. He never sought political office again. Instead, he went to work anonymously in a rundown settlement house in East London called Toynbee House. He washed the dishes, he cleaned the bathrooms, he visited people in prison, he visited people who were uh, in asylums, and he spent the rest of his life trying to help people. He never called in the press for photo ops, he didn't give an interview until 2005, when somebody essentially, almost by the time he was dying, uh, 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 essentially forced one out of him. He never did this to say, look at me, I'm rehabilitating my life, he just did it. Ultimately becoming the director of the center and continuing to work there for the last 40 years of his life. In 1995, John Profumo was invited to Margaret Thatcher's 70th birthday party. He was invited not because of his power politically, but because he was respected by that time for the work that he was doing in the community. And to his great surprise and, frankly, deep and horrendous embarrassment at Margaret Thatcher's 70th birthday party, the organizers of that party sat him next to the queen. John Profumo went to his grave believing that his fall from power, though painful, was the best thing that could have ever happened to him in his entire life. It saved his marriage, even after he did everything possible to destroy it, It gave him real, meaningful work to do. It ultimately saved his life. Sometimes when we suffer and struggle, it really is a gift of God's grace to us. When you progress from your position of pride through the presence of tears and land in the promise of grace, that is God's goodness to you. It is not God's judgment on you. It is goodness to you ultimately leading you to a feast at the right hand of the king thanks be to god that he is too good to us not to humble us by his grace let's pray father we do thank you for the grace that you offer us through our lord jesus christ we pray That even this morning, maybe for some here for the very first time, we would embrace that grace by placing trust in you. But for all of us, Father, we would ultimately cry out that we give all glory in our lives, not to us, but to you, O Lord, be all glory. In Jesus' name, amen.